Hey everybody, my name's Joe and welcome to Tabletop Theory. Today, I'm very happy to announce that my guest is Dr. Eric Wood, the Director of Counseling and Mental Health at Texas Christian University. And, full disclosure, I actually work for Dr. Wood at TCU. And over the last few years, he's been developing a new approach to mental health treatment at TCU called the Collaborative Care Model, and he's here to talk about it today. Um, Eric, thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate you being here. Absolutely, thank you for the invite. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of want to jump right into this. Um, about a year ago, you published an article with University Business, and um, that article talked about the need for change and sort of the approach of mental health treatment on university campuses. And it's a really wonderful article, and I'll leave a link to it down in the description. But um, in the article, you say, we can no longer assume that clinical therapy is the best response to every mental health need. So what did you mean by that? It just means it's the mindset. A lot of times the traditional mindset for counseling centers on campuses was when a student comes in, we just assign them to an individual counselor, uh, or if they're beyond a scope of care, we just assign them off campus. And that was really all that we had. Um, and it's kind of limited because, you know, we do short-term counseling a lot of times, and it just really wasn't meeting the needs of the students. Um, like if a student comes in and they're struggling with loneliness, um, is one-on-one -on -one therapy, you know, really gonna, meet their need because loneliness is just basically a signal that your social needs aren't being met um, right but to put them into like one-on-one -on -one therapy they just need a little more than that um, so it's pretty much just kind of having a mindset of there are other ways to meet the needs um, and also you know just relying on individual therapy from the staff therapist isn't the best way so we collaborate a lot with the community um, a lot with the departments on campus to figure out what best meets the needs of the student so when we've talked before, you've talked a little bit about the idea of this collaborative care model that you're working on at TCU and sort of developing. And um, it feels like that sort of idea of individual therapy not being the best fit for every student really kind of comes into the elements that we've talked about with collaborative care. So I'm wondering if you can sort of break down what are the main points of that model. Yeah, I mean, the model is just basically in response to the data. There's this narrative out there about college mental health that, I mean, that it's just going crazy, which, I mean, that part, there is, I mean, if you look at every clinical factor since, I don't know, 10 years, they're all on the rise. So just name one that's on the rise. We're seeing a lot more severity on our campus. We're seeing a lot more intense. We're seeing a lot more just students in general. Um, but the other part of the narrative is that schools can't do anything about it. Like, they're just overwhelmed. They're incompetent to do anything. And that's part of the narrative that is kind of dangerous. Um, um, I right. do think the old way, traditional way needs a change, but there's a lot of things that we've had success doing out of school. But part of it, you have to look at the data, like in the data from the Center of Collegiate Mental Health, um, there's national, national data, but it was definitely true at TCU, is that college counseling centers, we were spending about 50% of our resources on 20% of the clients. And these were mm -hmm. students that were coming in to campus with really high intense mental health needs and they would come to the counseling center and usually they would be beyond the scope of the care of the counseling center so the counseling center said you know we're going to refer you off um, but the problem is one a lot of times they don't go to the re referral and two they're still living on campus so the hall director and the ra and the deans of students are still interacting with them they bring them back to the counseling center for a crisis walk-in and you're still spending a lot of time and energy on them so that's one kind of pillar of our models because a lot of schools will say 
you know, we're institutional higher education. We're not going to do anything for the 20%, you know, good luck. If you can go off campus or stay in school, that's great. But if you can't, you know, we just, we do what we do. We decided, you know, maybe it's best to purposely see if we can do things for those 20%, um, have services that are specifically designed for students with high mental health needs. Now, obviously you can't burn my staff out. And so what we do is we actually collaborate, hence the, the, the name of the model, with community partners, like, and we actually bring their programs on our campus. So like, for example, there's an IOP from a treatment center, it's 15 minutes from campus, you know, if someone goes to their intensive outpatient program, a college student may not feel as comfortable because they might be in a group with someone who has grandkids going through divorce and can't relate. But if you bring them on their campus, they're with only TCU students. So that's one pillar is the fact that if you look at the data point, we're spending a lot of our resources on 20% of our client. So wouldn't it make sense to have something intentionally for those 20%? And you do that for collaborating with the community. The other data that you look at is in terms of our capacity, a lot of our clients are actually former clients who've been to counseling before. That's actually another data point. Um, and it's true nationwide and it's true for TCU. And on one hand, that's great because, you know, if people keep coming back to us, that means we have rapport. But at some point you have to think about what about the aftercare and what type of counseling we're doing. Counseling right. centers are known for just, you know, we treat the symptoms and when the symptoms are remission, we stop, you know, and is that really the best approach? If you look at things in substance use, that doesn't work you know you need to have recovery you need to have peer support um, and the idea of recovering so we actually partner with different people on our campuses you included to bring peer support <laughs> communities so we can offer that so if someone comes into counseling they're actually an aftercare and maintenance program it can be a group of students who just want to be in a community it's not a therapy group we just foster a community so that's the second data point about just returning clients the third data point is that we know in counseling centers, our staff are burnt out. Um, and that's kind of dangerous, actually. If there's a high level of burnout and the biggest source of the burnout has been unscheduled appointments, so that would be the triage and crisis response. Um, and so long story short, most counseling centers have staff therapists and they have to wear 10 different hats. They have to do triage, individual crisis group, mental health educator, all that. We pretty much compartmentalize and we actually have like a dedicated team that just does triage and crisis. So me needs the students better and it kind of prevents burnout from our staff. So basically our model and we have schools that are using our model is just looking at those three data points and seeing how can we address those. And you can come up with different ways, but the philosophy, the model is really a structured way of thinking. Right. And like you mentioned, it's the idea of if you have a student come in because they're feeling lonely mm -hmm. and you only have a set amount of sessions that you can have with that student and then care is terminated, you're not really able to help the student achieve the sort of outcome that you're looking for because that loneliness is just you know, they're there to have some kind of interaction with another person, but then if that interaction stops, you're kind of back where you started. Yeah, and that could be some harm too, because I mean, if someone's lonely, like who's better, you know, a, a therapist or someone in student activities that, you know, has a bunch of different right. groups and so who's a better need for that student? So sometimes we have to put down our pride because we're mental health experts, but realize some students come to us and some other office might be just a better fit for that student mm -hmm. than we are. And I think one of the things that sort of that brings to mind for me is there's a study that I read back in grad school. Um, it was about um, assault survivors. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that 
it talked about was the idea that if a student is the victim of an assault, mm -hmm. they're not going to come speak to a member of the professional staff at a university. They're probably not going to talk to the police, and they're probably not even going to talk to their family. The first people that they're going to go talk to, statistically, and this is something like 80%, they're going to go talk to a peer. Mm -hmm. So it's that level of interaction that is sort of assumed to take place with students on a college campus because they're going to talk to the people they're most comfortable with. Mm -hmm. and most of the time that's not going to be the counseling center so that sort of leads to this idea of helping the students in this particular case um meet them where they're at meet them where they're the most comfortable and you talked a little bit about the idea of peer support communities mm -hmm. and like you mentioned that's what i work on <laughs> and um i'm wondering if you can talk about where the idea for peer support communities came from yeah i mean so we do it differently when we say peer support community it's not peer education so it's not like these uh, students that are teaching other students like certain things they really are communities in fact we say they're communities and we don't say they're groups we say they're community um we really started off in the collegiate recovery yeah, i mean if you know anything about that literature that substance use and yeah it goes back to the ideal if you're in the middle of the addiction cycle and you have clinical interventions and that clinical interventions work but you stop after a month everyone knows what's going to happen you're going to go right back to the addition cycle and but so in that field the ideal is that you work recovery and the ideal that you have peer support I mean, if you know anyone in recovery they'll tell you you shouldn't do it alone there's no point you have these peers and it makes all the difference and so our intent initially was that can we do that community and that mindset for a, a variety of mental health domains not just substance use but for depression for anxiety for trauma um, and kind of use it as an aftercare but what we found and this kind of thing is a testament to what you were saying is that a lot of our students were electing to join the peer support community even before counseling so they were saying i want to mm -hmm. do that not as an aftercare but like i want to try that first right and then yeah. as you know yeah and then as you know as we did data they were saying that met their needs so yeah, it's the idea. Um, Johan Hari did a TED talk about um, the cure for addiction isn't necessarily sobriety, it's mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that sort of emphasis and just idea really holds a lot of water, especially for the students that you were mentioning that are in the peer support communities, because mm -hmm. they're trying to work that recovery. It's not something that just happens once and then is completed. It's something okay. that is an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, I totally agree. Ahead, yeah. And I just, I think that's what students are drawn to because when I mean, we have clinical groups that are therapy groups um, and, you know, the, we always, you know, will have that, but the peer support communities are so different because it focuses on the community and not really the meeting. The, I mean, students don't even have to go to the meeting. They can just join the group meeting, do the social events. Um, mm -hmm. But the students really gravitate that. I mean, to give an example, we tried for years to do a therapy group on eating disorders uh, and body image concerns. For years, we never could do it. I and mean, we just could never get the group to match. But then we started, you know, and it was a different mindset. You know, can we do a peer support community? And they're supported by staff, but as you know, they're run by students and it's focused on the community and recovery and you know we're running strong with like 17 members since you know so it's just and that's less than a year so i think it's just what students are drawn towards they do like that community 
So I'm wondering if you can sort of help differentiate between what a peer support community is and what group therapy is, yes. because I feel like sometimes whenever I'm having this conversation with people that says I do peer support communities, they're like, oh, group therapy. And then you kind of have to go down the idea of what the difference is. So I'm wondering yeah. if you can break that down. Yeah. I mean, the therapy group, first of all, you have to be licensed. So the people who are actually running the group are actually going to be licensed providers or at least PAC students, you know, with a licensed provider. And the whole point is therapy. Like you're there to design, to do therapy interventions for a certain thing. So the meeting is the focus. Like, you know, you really tell st uh, students, you, you know, can you commit to coming to the meetings? Um, because of your therapy interventions, the therapists are gonna be the lead. They're gonna document, it's gonna be clinical interventions, it's gonna have that clinical feel. Um, even the process part of it's gonna have a clinical element to it. Um, looking so that, for a specific outcome. Yeah, like and you're looking harm for- Harm reduction or something yeah, like that. Yeah, harm reduction. Yeah, symptom reduction, things like that. That's going to be the clinical group. Um, and most of the time in the clinical group, you don't, you know, you shy away from them interacting outside of the group because if they have these subgroups outside of the group, then it's going to take away from the session. So you kind of discourage that, you know, a little bit or at least, you know, say don't talk about what happens in the group outside of the group. Um, the peer support community is absolutely different. First of all, it's peer-led. Um, so even though we have a staff support, students are the leader. Um, and when I say peer-led, it doesn't mean the students have to spend 30 minutes researching a topic or anything. Sometimes they just bring a quote or a poem. They just start a discussion, you know? 15-minute um, mm -hmm. discussion can be about anything. Um, last CRC I went to, they talked about studying for final exams. You know, that was it. So definitely student-led. Um, all of our peer support communities have some way to communicate outside of the group like whether it be group me or like the gaming community has discord um, and we encourage the students to actually connect outside the group we'll do things to foster the community like we'll take them to brunch once a month they go to athletic events once a month um, and um, so that's kind of the focus is on a community and students don't have to go to the meeting like if they can't make the meeting in a peer support community but want to connect with students who have similar experiences they can still join the group meeting they can still do the social social events. So it's not dependent on the meeting. Um, and they know the staff is just supporting. They're not leading it. They're just supporting. So those are some of the differences. And you mentioned that it's student-led. And this is sort of, I mean, the groups that I help to facilitate are the supportive gaming community yes. groups, which function a little bit differently in that um, Dungeons and Dragons, which is the <laughs> system that we use kind of necessitates somebody to facilitate the groups. Yeah. They need a game master. But like you mentioned, the wonderful thing about that community is sort of what happens outside yes. of the community. Mm -hmm. And you start to have students and going back to the loneliness example, um, if you have a student that might feel disconnected on a mm -hmm. college campus, then that gives them the opportunity to go and play a game like Dungeons and Dragons. And that's a structured game that you have a dedicated game master there for every week, mm -hmm. but then you're meeting people who are involved in the hobby and become part of your adventuring party. And exactly. then that helps to foster those types of social connections. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty big departure from that individual therapy mm -hmm. model that has existed for a while inside of higher education. And like you mentioned, um, in that article, you said you can't assume that clinical therapy is the best response. Mm -hmm. And 
like you said again, it's also the reason behind that is because there's such a lot, such a much larger need mm. that's um, been occurring over the last several years. I mean, some of the studies I've read have said that these needs have been increasing steadily for, in some cases, multiple decades. And I'm curious. I know that. I have my own opinion on why that need is really growing. Mm -hmm. And some cases I see it saying that there's just so much more stress for a lot of students that are coming mm -hmm. into university, so much more stress for students in high school. But I also think that there's a part of it that the stigma around asking for help with mental mm -hmm. health has reduced a bit, possibly even over the last few decades. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering what you think about that. I would say all of the above. I mean, the fact that, I mean, schools, we've done a good job on campuses to reduce the stigma and kind of normalize counseling. So I think part of the overflow is kind of our outreach programs, you know, just kind of make yeah. it more normal. And the fact that you just have tons more students than you do. So I think that's going to have a fact on it. But if you look at it, yeah, the prevalence is also increasing. So it's not just, you know, just demographics. Um, the prevalence is also in increasing. So it's going to be a combination of all that's not going to be one thing but with that and this kind of goes back to the model we tend to forget that counseling students we do see some serious stuff i mean we see some suicide ideation eating disorder but most of our students will come in for developmental needs and sometimes in the narrative we lose sight of that you know that most of our clients come for developmental needs they don't come because they have a serious clinical disorder I and mean, we see a lot of that so if you think about that way, yeah, a lot of students come and the idea of having a community, the idea of having connection and learning social skills, that sometimes will be a, a big need for a lot of our clients. So what do you mean by developmental needs? Things like maybe that wouldn't be a full-blown like disorder, like someone comes for adjustment problems, you know, because they started in school. So like in August, we'll see a lot of first-year students that are coming, you know, just because of adjusting. And even though it's technically a disorder, but it's not like a full-blown depression, just everything in the life is changing, you know? Right. Where they go to school, their parents, their friends, where they eat, where they sleep, and all Living that. away from home for the first yeah. time. And all that is the stress of changing. That's developmental. It's not anything wrong with them. That's kind of what we expect. If you take anyone's life and change everything, you're going to experience some anxiety and stress. So those students that come in, we wouldn't necessarily say, okay, you have you know, a major depressive disorder. We would just say, okay, I mean, that's developmental because everything's changing. Right. Um, a lot of times people might struggle with the relationship issues, like roommates or talking with professors, and that might carry over. So when you really break it down, it's like, well, how are you relating to people is kind of Mm -hmm. um, not like there's something wrong with your personality it's just kind of connecting with people um, yeah if someone comes in and they don't have a social network um, I mean think about it it's going to spiral I mean they're going to yeah. eventually start affecting their perception of the school their perception of the world their perception of that they want to stay at the university or not Where really it's not the personality it's just they don't have any connections so again that's a developmental thing and I think that what you mentioned that development of a social network is mm -hmm. something that is so vital for everybody, not just mm -hmm. college students. But um, I think it kind of goes back to the idea of why I feel like the supportive gaming community using Dungeons and Dragons really kind of ticks a really important box because um, so much of what kind of makes effective social communities and social networks actually work is that in-person interaction. It's the idea that you're dealing with people face to face. Now, of course, everybody had the sort of collective experience of being separated from a lot of people physically over the last year because of coronavirus. But um, 
creating that sort of network is so vital and so important. And that's really why I feel like utilizing Dungeons and Dragons in the supportive gaming community can be so helpful for a lot of these students for that developmental need that you suggested. Because if you've got a student coming in from coming into TCU mm-hmm. and they lived in, I don't know, Wisconsin their entire mm-hmm. life and all of their friends and all of their family are a few hundred miles away, then who do they have to talk to? Exactly. What what communities do they have access to? You know, maybe they've tried to play Dungeons and Dragons back in Wyoming with very degrees <laughs> of success, and then they come to TCU and they know they want to play, but they don't have the opportunity to really meet people who are maybe involved in the same hobby. But with the supportive gaming community, they do. And just like you were saying, when you have students that might be in recovery, maybe this is something that they've thought about um, attempting back when they were home, or maybe it's something that they discover a need for when they're in the university, creating that sort of opportunity for connection, I feel like is so vital. And it's really, really helpful for, um, for people whenever they discover that they have that need. So, um, I'm curious, how do you see that sort of collaborative care model fitting into mental health treatment outside of higher education? Um, uh, that's a good question because we focus on it, but I think, I mean, one with the community partners, I mean, it's kind of related. Um, I mean, because we, you know, we do a lot of treatment centers, and before it's like, you know, the mindset was counseling or centers have to do everything by themselves. Um, and so I really believe now, like with an IOP, I think every major university should have an IOP. And if I was a treatment center out there, I would say, <laughs> you know, look to as a college. Um, but and yeah, can you, um, Briefly, just describe the difference uh, between like IOP, PHP, and yeah, so the IOP different levels. Is basically, yeah, level of care is what we're talking about. And so outpatients usually like once a week. IOP is maybe like three times a week, maybe for a couple of hours. So you're pretty much doing nine hours of therapy. So it's pretty intense. It's the name intensive outpatient program. Um, and we started you know, a couple of those on our campuses, and they've been great because they have students with high mental health needs. This is where they go. Um, and with colleges being, you know, the demographics that we have and the prevalence rate that we have, yeah, you think what if every school out there had services for those 20% of students with high mental health needs? If that was something that was just a norm, eventually you're going to make a dent to society numbers, you know, with the mental health issues in societies, because so many students come to colleges, um, they're adults, so you don't have to worry about the dynamics of parents. 1824 is when it emerges. So if you treat it right after it merges, like that actually might be the best time to treat it um i think you can really make it in society if you do it if you think of it that way and that ought to be a main hope but the other ideal is just the community um you know i think it applies for us but i think it applies for people in general we see a lot of students who really that is like the core and there is a stigma they're not going to come and say well i'm dealing with loneliness because it may be hard you know right so they never come to counseling but if you have this community it almost makes it easier they say oh i'm interested in this community you know um so it makes it easier for them to ask help um and so there's somehow the idea that could be in you know out there in the community where it's just everyone in the world i asked do you have a sense of community because um, I would bet the people who say they have a sense of community are doing a lot better on a different factors like mental health and a lot of other things just have a buffer versus the people who say they don't have a community. Hmm. I think that's an important distinction just because the idea of having a place to belong mm-hmm. is so powerful. Yeah. And I'm, it's, a, it's an almost universal experience. 
Oh, absolutely. I think humans are, are social needs. And that's what I love about the gaming community. Because, I mean, as you know, I didn't, I was not a gamer. <laughs> didn't know anything about Dungeons and Dragons. I was actually really hesitant about that. And you and Kyle did a really good job to convince me and with Dr. <laughs> Bean. Um, but the thing as a director has been so fascinating is, one, we're able to draw students that we know we would never connect. I mean, counseling centers, I guess, in general, has had a hard time connecting with students who are gamers. Um, and I always joke that when we do, you know, they talk different languages, so we just don't talk, you know, and so it's been really hard to connect with them. So, I mean, the fact that we have this Dungeons and Dragons that's connected to the counseling center has been huge because we're able to connect students and automatically they're connected with us, the stigmas are reducing with us, but then they also have the community. I love the fact that it's a role-playing game, you know, in person, so it's not online. They have to be in person at the table and talking yeah. to each other. And the fact that they hang out after the meetings, they on Discord, they're active. Um, so they're not just alone playing games, they're actually having that community and of all the communities we have, that's one of the ones I get the most feedback about how much students like the other students and like the community um, and how much. That's great that, to hear. Yeah, just like how much that being that community actually means to them. I mean, I've had some students say so that's why they stayed at TCU. Um, so I think that's wow. amazing. I mean, you kind of brought up a really interesting point that I wanted to talk about. It's the idea of just a different language almost mm. that sort of like you were saying, um, the counseling centers had some difficulty being able to help people that you described as gamers mm. and it, part of it becomes a language barrier, but not just with gamers, but with other communities, how do you feel like, where, where do you feel like that disconnect occurs? I think just because you know, there's something, each of communities, there's a lot of shared experiences. You know, you think about like the gamer sure. community, they have their own language because they have the shared experiences. You know, they actually mm -hmm. play the same games and things like that. Where if our therapists typically in counseling there's there wasn't any of us to have those shared experiences, you know? So mm -hmm. we, we didn't have the language. Just like the depression and anxiety, we have a group called Renew, it's for depression and anxiety. The power about that group is that the other students are with other students who had similar experience. They've been through a depressive episode. They've had right. panic attacks and things like that. So just the fact that they had these shared experiences brings that bond. Whereas a therapist may not have had that personal experience. So, so just the fact mm -hmm. that you have that shared experience, I think it gives students the ability to say stuff that therapists can never say <laughs> to each other. <laughs> um, and, yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, just because they know they've been in their shoes and they have the experiences. And so I think of each of our communities are really designed, that's the whole point, is not just meeting friends, but actually you're connecting with like-minded people, people who have similar experiences with you. And I think that's where the power is, is that they know these people, they know what it's like, they've had similar experiences. So it creates the bond, which creates a different language, creates a different perspective. So it's amazing that at least as long as I've been involved doing the supportive communities, which at this point has been about two years, um, how much the other communities have grown, how, how many more of them there have um, sort of become. And I know that they're um, approaching different things. There's substance abuse, there's disordered eating, there's the supportive gaming community, and um, it's going really well, it seems yeah. like. And um, I'm curious, have you received any sort of pushback on this and if you have i'm not asking you to name names but like what kind of sort of negative feedback or like maybe criticism would be a word to think uh, about like how people might feel about this would go 
Um, not, I wouldn't say criticism. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, when we started, we had four groups, now we're like over 20, and the students really like it, and the students are writing letters about it, so it's hard to be critical about that. Yeah. Uh, I would think the main thing, kind of going back to our previous discussion, there was a little bit of confusion, maybe, like, are these groups clinical groups, you know, even like I'm right. thinking of my staff when we approached this idea, some of my staff could not wrap their head around like this is not a clinical group and we're going to be on group me and we're going to go out and buy them brunch. I mean, and just they just could not wrap the head around, even though with substance use, that's completely the norm in substance use. Um, they just could not. And like you said, it's been two years. And I think our staff just had to see what we call the magical moments, you know, have to see like what happens on the group me that that's actually a safety net and the encouragement that goes on to the group me or the discord. The fact that we see students who are staying in school because of the communities. And now every single one of my staff has elected to join a peer support community and run it or be a staff support so i think that just the buys in so it's such a different concept because it's, like i said in the, our field is peer education this is even, even peer education it's a kind of a different new um just taking that recovery model and applying it to other mental health domains and so if there was any pushback quote unquote confusion i think it was from our staff just not getting it i think the students loved it from the beginning um it was just so new and the idea that it wasn't clinical um and that's but, kind of an important distinction, I think, from mm -hmm. some of the folks that I've met and some of the folks that I've worked with. It's that sort of, um, I guess you could call it like the medical model approach. Yes. I mean, I, I know that a lot of the folks that I've worked with, they're, they're great folks, and obviously they're very client-focused, and they want to help everybody get the outcomes that they're looking for. But it's the idea that like coming up with a diagnosis for what somebody might be dealing with yes. is potentially sometimes more important than actually talking to the client and figuring out how they want help. And that it, it, I know that's not exactly what you're describing, but it seems like it's that idea that this is how things have been done in the past, mm -hmm. but this is how we're trying something new in the future. And um, so far, it seems like it's been going really well. Oh, absolutely. And I think there's a lot to it, you know? I mean, someone comes in and, you know, they have depression, anxiety, you know, I think there is a script to how we treat it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I'm to say that's not important. Obviously, I mean, we do counseling, it's what we do. Sure. Um, but sometimes, especially if you do individual and group, we lose the fact like with depression, there's a whole community aspect to it, you know, yeah, you do cognitive behavior therapy and perceptions and things like that. But what if they isolate themselves? Mm -hmm. You know, you know, all the kind dispersions in the world isn't going to help with the isolation right. um, or if they have social anxiety and, you know, they, you know, how, I mean, we tell them to take risk, but if they have social anxiety, that's kind of hard, you know, because we're not with them outside of the group. We're not walking to them in class. We're not doing things like that, but we have a peer support community for social anxiety. So they'll come to that and they're with other students who have social anxiety so they can practice that. Um, but they all go out to eat together, you know, as opposed to just therapy. Group. Right. So, but yeah, I think also people just not getting it. Like the Dungeons and Dragons is a good example. People just think, oh, y'all just playing games. <laughs> you know and you know Which, that that's a big part of yeah. it but yeah that's not all of it but see the thing is though they talk as if that's a criticism and it's not a criticism because one the game itself is teaching them a lot of things yes um, and that's absolutely. what i've learned is that i see the game teaching them social skills and empathy and even confidence and creativity and the, the figure out the character like i've learned a lot in the last couple of years that, that to say they're just playing games 
that's not a criticism. Yeah. So playing a game that teaches them a lot of life lessons, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. And we can go into that. So that when people say the game is like, don't be shy. Yes. They're playing a game. It's a wonderful game. Um, but there's wizards I, of the coast. If you're listening, uh, <laughs> you can feel free to call me. Yeah. And I think it applies to all the college students. I'm, so it's a great thing, but it's also the magic outside of the game because they're not just playing the game. They don't mm -hmm. just like play the game, leave the table. They play the right, game. Yeah. They connect. They'll talk about characters. They'll go to conventions. They'll go to research stuff. They really form a community. Um, yeah. And so that's also magical. So. And you kind of mentioned the idea of like these magical moments that mm -hmm. happen inside of these supportive communities. Do you have one that you can kind of talk about, or do you have yeah, like a I mean, one that you'd like yeah, to I got so many. I mean, because that's what we termed it. Because we always say the magic, you know, happens outside the group, uh, outside right. the meetings. I mean, sometimes in meetings they're important, but like in your group, we had a, a person, you know, he actually says in front of our associate vice president, he was thinking about leaving the university because he was a first year student, didn't have any friends. Um, and he gave an example where we, we gave lunch to the community and associate vice president was there. And he was saying what he liked the most was that he could send a message out, you know, can I have coffee? And he have 24 responses saying, let's go and let's do it. Right. And that made him feel like he was belonging. That is a magical moment right there. You know, mm -hmm. that's something that a, a counseling therapy group couldn't do. We've had like on our group meetings, I mean, we've had an example of, you know, someone celebrating sobriety and they get a whole bunch of students encouraging them, you know, where they're afraid that yeah, that that's would amazing. be, you know, be laughed at or even with our eatings or um, food concerns and body images. I mean, we had people saying, you know, they're, thoughts about restricting but then you have a whole army of support you know about giving mm -hmm. healthy needs um in our renew i remember one student wrote because he had a felt like he's being criticized by a professor so it's very triggering and then there was just an onslaught of support you know and just kind of building him up and saying like you're you know all these positive affirmations and at the end he was like this is what i needed yeah absolutely so all that's magical moments and that's what students gave to each other that's really great. And I, I remember hearing that story about the idea that just like you can text somebody at two in the morning when most professional staff are like asleep, yes. but college students operate 24 hours a day. So you can have that level of just positive feedback, positive response yeah. that you get really. And that's what I think is a big buy-in because when the staff was on GroupMe, again, a lot of us staff didn't know about GroupMe and thought that meant you gave all the students your number. It's like, no, you don't give them your number. That's what GroupMe's for. Um, but yeah, they don't monitor. I mean, they're on the GroupMe just in case something happens, um, but they don't have to monitor 24-7 because we've had examples, like let's say our depression that we knew where somebody was struggling, you know, and the staff is asleep, but the other students are like, well, here's a 24-7 counseling line number, you know, call right. this number, you know, I'll walk with you for the counseling tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. I'll meet you there. And our staff's asleep and all this stuff's going on. And so that's what it actually builds a safety net because again, they're connected to the counseling center. So most of the people in the peer support community, they know how the counseling center works. They know there's a 24 seven counseling line. They know where we're located, you know? So when something happens yeah. in the group, you have other students encouraging, hey, do this. So it actually, like I say, increases our safety net. I mean, that's, that's really powerful. I think just because that community is stepping up to just help in more ways than just, Hey, let's go get brunch. It's yeah. stepping up in ways that mental health isn't just something that gets brushed under the rug. Mm -hmm. It's something that they are a part of a community that's run by the counseling and mental health center. And as a result of that, 
it's on the forefront. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might not be everything that everybody talks about. And like you mentioned, the big distinction between group therapy and a supportive community is that group therapy has that sort of clinical intervention. It's got that intended outcome mm-hmm. as opposed to a support community where it's people being there to literally support each other mm-hmm. and have some kind of common factor. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's amazing to me that um, something so simple as just having people that support you Mm-hmm. has, I don't want to say been overlooked, but it's something that um, isn't utilized more. <laughs> in, and you see, you, you, but I, you know, that now that I say that, I kind of take that back. In substance abuse and recovery, that's kind mm-hmm. of the method yeah. that is used a lot of the time. I mean, you have 12-step programs um, and you have things like Al-Anon where there is that anonymous mm-hmm. aspect to it, but at the same time, those meetings are there to help provide yes. that support. So do you think that this sort of method is going to continue to spread through mental health treatment? Or do you think that it's just something that um, really only holds water in sort of small communities like you would have in educational institutions? I hope. I mean, because I mean, I get on my soapbox about, I think, you know, traditionally (laughs) stereotypical concept of counseling for us is very Western individualistic, you know? Yeah. The idea of like, I'm going to my therapist and then my therapist, like this is the expert in helping me. And I'm doing, and, you know, that's a very individual Western society where mm-hmm. I think of the collective cultural, this is actually, I think a lot more powerful. So instead of saying, I'm going to my therapist, like, I mean, there's a journey, there's other people involved, you know? And instead of looking at the therapist as, you know, like the one and only soul, that's so much pressure for me. Um, but the idea of like, I mean, my theory is attachment theory and interpersonal. So I definitely, I mean, that's kind of the way I kind of see the world is that we are attachment beings and that, you know, not to say this end all be all, but if you are struggling something, attachments can be a buffer or it could be a very support system or a coping mechanism. And so even though you can have all these individual therapy, which is great, but if you don't pay attention to the attachment, you're losing out either on potential or even sources. Like I said, if they're isolating themselves, all the individual therapy kind of behavior theory in the world isn't going to work because they're isolating themselves. So I would love it if the community, especially if we took more of a collectivist view and not see the client just as an individual, but see them in the context of where is their community. I think that's the question we should ask every client is, do you have a sense of community? Not just do you have people around, everyone has people around, but do you feel like you belong to a community? I don't think we ask most of our clients that, but I think that's a fundamental thing for most people. Yeah do you feel like you belong somewhere? Yeah. And I know from some of the clients that I talked with when I was doing clinical work, it's the answer is oftentimes no. Exactly. And And, we don't ask that question, but that's the core problem to me. If someone says no, I think you start there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. And I I think um, at one point um, a few years ago, I heard you give a presentation about um, sort of, how different interactions inside of university um, have higher degrees of efficacy to mm-hmm. treat mental health instead of, like you were mentioning, that um, that individualized therapy session. And I remember what you said was um, sometimes um, if a student's coming to me, they may get 
more benefit from going and working with student activities than what I could provide. Yes. And for those of you that don't know, student activities, those are the people that put on the big events around campus. They're the people that sometimes bring concerts to campus or they're the people that sometimes just do little handouts of things to help students um, deal with stress like granola bars and stuff like that. And it's very effective. But is that sort of interaction with the community do you think that's part of what you're talking about or is there something else to it oh no absolutely i mean that situation and we had a lot of students you know and that would come from homesickness they were just homesick and part of being homesickness is like your routines all scramble and really the cure from homesickness is to kind of settle that routine down and actually have established attachments you know that would kind of give that sense of okay normalcy back um and so, yeah, we can explain the process and, you know, tell students, you know, this is what's going to happen, expect it, and that makes them feel better. But Brad and student activities, I mean, he had a group of students, you know, that would just run the events and they're always looking for new people. So if someone was homesick and didn't have any friends, Brad could literally introduce them to a group of friends, <laughs> pretend to <laughs> friends, and me and individually one-on-one, -on -one, I couldn't. I couldn't even tell people they're a client because of confidentiality. So oh, yeah. at some point, who's going to meet their core needs better? You know, I can give them the education right. and I can kind of, you know, calm them down a little bit, but Brad can actually be more instrumental in having that need be met. Um, right. And so, I mean, that's, I think, a lot of the draw of the peer support communities. But it's just the idea that sometimes in counseling centers, we get so busy and so rushed that, again, we just automatically want to take the individual approach. Well, here's a panic attack. Here's anxiety. Okay, well, maybe their panic attack is because they feel alone all the time. You know, and here we are, we're doing deep breathing, which helps. I'm not saying it doesn't help. Like we definitely need to, you know, the whole flight or flight walk it down, but the core maybe they're alone, you know? Yeah. And you know, does that ever come up? Um, yeah. Same thing with depression. I mean, self-esteem, all that stuff. I just believe that when we're securely attached to other people, then that affects how we view ourselves. So. I think you're absolutely right. Having that sense of self. Um, can oftentimes come from being a part of a community, being mm -hmm. part of, I don't know, sort of organized structures of social interaction. And I think things like Dungeons and Dragons are absolutely a great way to do things like that. Um, <clears throat> and I want to step back for a second because you mentioned the idea of um, counselor burnout mm -hmm. briefly. And I think that's something that um, doesn't really get talked about a lot. But I think the idea of counselor burnout comes down in a lot of ways to the sort of larger conversation about self-care mm -hmm. because um, counselor burnout is sort of this concept of compassion fatigue. I feel like there's a lot of it that has a lot of root in this idea of compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. And for those that aren't familiar, compassion fatigue is something that people that work in helping professions deal with. And it's the idea that you are listening to people who are dealing with difficulties and dealing with problems and you're trying to be empathetic. And that takes a lot of emotional and intellectual and sometimes physical energy to do. And over time, it wears on you. And it's just like you were saying, Eric, it's that concept of the counselor being seen as the expert mm -hmm. and this sort of position of authority. And that takes a lot of emotional effort. Mm -hmm. And I know that self-care was something that had a lot of emphasis um, for me from my professors when I was in graduate school. Mm -hmm. And um, 
honestly, it's not something that I was good at and it's something that I'm still learning how to do, but it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, it's a phrase that gets used by people. I mean, you see it on Twitter a lot. It's like self-care Sunday or something like that, but it's never really taught. We're not, we just, everybody sort of assumes that everybody knows what self-care is. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's good to do, but it's also really important to understand how to do it mm -hmm. and what it is for you. So I'm wondering, how do you feel, how do you approach self-care both for yourself, but also as the director of the counseling center and keeping an eye on the counselors that work for you? I think, um, I can't remember when, but one of the biggest things about self-care metaphors about self-care that really struck me um, someone that told me, think of self-care like about yoga. I don't know if you've ever known anyone who's ever done yoga, but do. if you do, you don't say, I do yoga. Um, they say you practice yoga because it's not like a one-time thing that you do. Mm. It's a lifelong something that you practice. And I okay. think self-care is the same thing. It's not something that you do. It's not like an event like I do this on Sunday. It should be a practice. It's a mindset that you do all the time that you practice in your life. So it's more like a mentality, you know? Um, and I think that's what really opened my eyes because sometimes you self-care is like, oh, it's an event. Like I'm gonna take a day off at self-care or I'm gonna do this, but no, you practice this. Even people in yoga, they'll practice breathing like at work because they're always in the mindset we're practicing it. And so I think self-care is that, is something that you think is a lifestyle that you practice. It could be two minutes in the day, you know? It could yeah. be just an opportunity to take a longer walk. It could be, um, you know, a lot of things it doesn't have to be this, you know, big thing going on vacation. Um, that's part of it, but it's more nuanced than that. It's like how you see the world and how you see your life. And I think if you're a caregiver, you have to have the mentality that you practice it. Yeah. Um, and that is a lifestyle for you. And it's something that you kind of absorbed all the time. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it. Um, and just kind of the way you do it. And the other thing is you have a certain amount of energy. And once it's done, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know and if it's done and you're sitting across someone who's suicidal guess what it's still done <laughs> you know so you need to preserve your energy um but i also think part of it goes with the system um i mean you heard me talk about how the system's set up with therapists wearing a bunch of different hats but i also mm -hmm. think it's a lot of pressure i mean i could tell you from our staff when we have a student that is also in a peer support community you know, it feels like, okay, the burden's not all on me, you know? If mm. we have a student that's beyond a scope of care, but they're in the IOP program, we actually feel really good about that as opposed to like, okay, I referred them, I don't know what happened to them. Um, right. So the fact that, again, it kind of goes with the counseling um, individual. Um, if we know that they're doing other stuff, it helps. When I'm working with this student with Brad, in student activities, even though I was working with them, I felt better because Brad was also working with them, introducing with friends. It actually reduced the load and kind of the difficulty for me. Um, so I think that's another benefit of collaborating with it. Like, yeah, we're doing therapy, we're doing clinical stuff, but if other people are helping me in the knees, it actually makes it quote unquote easier, or less burdensome, I guess. Well, sure, it makes sense because the, the load is shared. And that's not to say that anybody looking for help with mental health is a burden. Yeah. But it's just to say that like, if there's more than one person involved in that process mm -hmm. and to try to help provide support, yes. it's not all on that counselor. Yes, exactly. And, and I think that, that kind of 
and it makes you feel energized too like they're part of the team and you see the results and report so i think that also helps too sometimes we just kind of take on like we have to do it all by ourselves not just clients but as therapists too and sure. I, I think that's kind of a, something you look at as well and i really love the idea of practicing yoga and i've i've never i've heard that but i've never really it's never clicked for me it's the idea that it's not something that you do it's mm -hmm. something that you are consistently learning to do yes. and yeah. and you never um, get finished you'll never be right. done you always got to keep practicing mm -hmm. and, and i love that especially when thinking about the supportive gaming community um i've had members of that community and i've had other people be like I want to learn how to be a GM. I want to learn how to be a game master. I want to learn how to be a dungeon master. And um, I think thinking about it in the way of like practicing being a game master is really appropriate because in my experience, and I've been doing this for many decades, um, you, you're never done. Yeah, you're exactly. never officially like, I, I've done it. I've arrived. Um, exactly. it, it's you're, you're consistently practicing these techniques and you're learning new things and you're learning what works and you're learning what may not work all the time. And it's an aspect of yourself that you get to consistently work on and improve, but it's never a destination. Exactly. It's a journey. Mm -hmm. And I really love that idea. So, um, if you're somebody who's actually asked me, like, how do I become a GM? That I would like to replace all previous answers by saying that you you might be able to call yourself a GM, but it's something you will consistently be learning how to do because it's true. There's really not an end date to it, but that's also not a bad thing. No, there's I think there's it, so much to it. Yeah, go ahead. It keeps you learning. Like I say, if you think yeah. of it that way, like it's not something you accomplish. It keeps you learning and keeps it on your mind and it keeps, you know... <laughs> the motivation, I guess. Yeah, and I think just like you said, it's the same principle can apply to self care. You're never going to be a hundred percent like good at self care. It's always something that you get to do because you feel like it's something that benefits you because you need to do it. Um, I know for me and for other folks that I've spoken to, the idea of self-care can sometimes also carry a lot of this idea of shame behind it because, you know, this is something I'm doing when I should be doing something else. This is something that I'm stopping work for or I'm putting off chores for in order to play a video game or read a book or go on a walk or something like that. And that, that sense of selfishness might come into that. And I think that kind of plays into the idea of what you were talking about with a counselor sort of being maybe the only point of support for a client. It's the idea that, um, like you were saying, um, if you have a person that you're speaking to that's dealing with suicidal ideation and you're burned out, you don't have the energy to give that person that can benefit them, but they're still there with you. Yes. So being able to take a step in the direction of I need to recharge myself. I need to do this intentionally and be okay with it, not to force yourself to be okay with it, but just with the idea that if you are comfortable with self-care, you are really also benefiting the things that you're going to get to go back to. Yes. If you're a counselor, if you're a teacher, if you just work at a bank or if you're a student, you know, there's all these aspects of self-care that really help you out whenever you're able to look at that some something like be feeling burned out and just taking the time to give yourself permission to take care of yourself. 
exactly everyone needs to recharge we say that like you know <laughs> just like every yeah. car needs to fill up you know you need to recharge and some people feel obligated it's like you can't expect just to go on go and just your energy level is gonna you know go low but you can recharge it and so part of that process of any achievement or any accomplishment there's got to be a recharging process of just yeah. your energy back up absolutely mm -hmm. and um i think that's one of the really great things about the supportive gaming community and the collaborative care model that i've seen in action is the idea that you're not just one person or you're not just the only approach of being individual therapy there's counselors that can build relationships with off-campus resources or people on campus um, to help approach not just one student's mental health, mm. but also the idea of what mental health is on a college campus or ec might even translate well to something like a high school campus or a campus with younger students. Um, you mentioned outreach mm -hmm. and you mentioned the idea that um, mental health outreach is something that I know you've worked on in the past, but it's something that is still happening on a college campus, um, especially at TCU. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you feel like mental health outreach plays into that collaborative care model and education? Sorry, I shouldn't just say outreach. It's also <laughs> outreach and education. Yeah, I mean, I mean, technically for us, it's two, two levels for us. I mean, we actually have a part, department that does wellness and education. So they do a lot of outreach. So that is Self freezes up to do a lot of counseling, which is kind of a collaboration part too. Um, yeah. But two, when you do the mental health outreach, again, it's just how you approach it. I mean, sometimes we talk about mental health like you have to do it all by yourself. Um, and we do that with all health related. It's like when people talk about fitness, like we got to do it by yourself. It's like, well, what about a fitness community? Like, there's, right. you know, you can do that with other yeah. people. I mean, very few people can just go into the gym all by themselves and just work out and just, you know, like, you know, they need a community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but we don't talk that way. We always talk about it as like an individual journey, you know, but um, I think, you know, you can have a community. And so I think the mental health too, I mean, that's one of the things we do is not really talk about it as, you know, individual, like if you have as these are wrong, you know, like a lot of people have depression, a lot of people have anxiety, a lot of people struggle with college, a lot of people struggle with um, developmental issues. Like, in fact, I would say everyone, you know, has our struggles. And so our outreach is not to really make it so much an individual approach, like there's something wrong with you, or if you see this, you know, wrong, but here are the resources on campus. Um, yeah. And when we talk about like, here are the support communities on campus and here are the resources, it's more positive, you're more encouraging people to use as opposed to something's wrong with you go to counseling you know yeah um so i think it's just kind of a message of how we do it um but yeah i would like to see more of the collectivist theme out there and like you know here are mm -hmm. communities and here are resources as opposed to more of an individual approach so yeah and for those of you watching or listening there is a list of resources that is down in the description of this episode on youtube and on spotify and feel free to reach out to them because that's what they're there for they are communities that are designed to help you if you feel like you have a need for things like that and there's nothing wrong with that because everybody needs help and that's okay and as we're winding down to the end of the episode um eric uh i wanted to give you a chance to sort of leave us with a final thought. And this could be an affirmation or some advice or something that you'd like to share with the people that are watching and listening. 
Uh, I mean, first, thanks for people who are taking this time to, to do this. Uh, I think the affirmations, kind of what we talked about, is one thing I've asked all my students, or a lot of people, is that sense of community. Um, community is something that you can develop. It just has to be very intentional about it. Um, and I think a lot, a lot of people do is they live their life and they may have people around like coworkers and um, whoever they go home with and things like that. Um, but they don't really have that sense of belonging and community. Um, and I tell you, for a fact, everyone has that need. That's just kind of my thought. We're all attachment beings. And so there's people out there who want you to be in their, your, their community, um, just like you want them to be in your community. So I would say there's one thing out there. It's just ask yourself, do you have a sense of being a part of community, a sense of belonging? Um, and if the answer is no, be very honest. I don't think it's a criticism to say you have needs, social needs, that's part of life. Doesn't mean anything bad about you. Um, so if you have that need, take some time to figure out ways to meet that need. Like how can I develop a sense of community, have more people in your life um, without being critical of yourself, without you know making judgments of why the need's still there, the need's a need. Um, you can just meet that need without being critical. So just developing that sense of community is what I would kind of express. Absolutely. And Eric, thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. I really appreciate your time. Um, and um, if you have any question, if anybody has any questions for you or um, wants to learn about more about the collaborative care model, where can they do that? Um, yeah, if you, you can, anyone can email me. It's e.c.wood.tcu.com. Um, um, Counseling.tc.edu is our website. Um, you'll see a lot of our peer support things on there. We actually have a page just for the peer support communities. Um, so we're going to update that for the fall of uh, 2021. But that's all the information about our center. Um, so you can read all about us and email me directly. Great. And um, as always, thank you everybody so much for watching. Appreciate you being here. Take care, be kind, and have fun adventuring. <laughs>